This is the Do Good Better podcast with Trina Isaacson. Welcome. On today's episode, I'm going to start off talking about when you're in a role and your time on that role is coming to an end and reflecting on some personal experiences I'm having right now as my time as a board chair comes to an end next week. But also on the show, I speak to Dev Ajla. He does recruitment for companies that make money and do good. And we have a conversation about the monopoly or the lack of monopoly that nonprofits have over social good jobs. And he shares insights about new career fields that do have a social impact. I also take a question from a listener on what I think about days of giving and day-long corporate volunteerism, which is uh, unfortunately not very much. But first, let's talk about when you're in a role and your time in that role is coming to an end. I mentioned that I am board chair of an organization. I've been with that board for four years and have been board chair for two years. And there's certain things that are a part of a role coming to an end that I wanted to chat about and hear your perspectives on as well. So some of the things that I've considered have been working through as my time comes to an end is succession planning, which was a long process that started as soon as I started my board chair role. Um, Another thing is leaving a legacy and the things that I had hoped to do before I started in the role and what I actually achieved as I, my time comes to an end. Um, Another thing that I do is I look back on the learning that I've gone through and the mistakes that I've made and things that I would do differently in the future and things that I can be proud of. And then finally, the nitty gritty tasks that get done as a part of handing over a role. So one of the major pieces that I learned when it comes to succession planning is that the best laid plans don't always work out. Uh, We had a plan for succession in place in terms of, you know, someone specific stepping up into the board chair role. And it didn't work out because of changing job expectations for for that person. And another option that we had uh, ended up moving to a different country. And so there were plans that were in place that just fell through. And luckily, we started the conversations around confirming and clarifying incoming board chair early. And there's also a, a lot of depth of good people on our board so that we could make arrangements for an alternative when it comes to um, incoming board chairs. And so that was a huge learning piece for me. I I expected it to be really smooth and then wrenches get thrown into it. So uh, if I have advice for people who are currently board chairs or are currently executive directors and are thinking ahead towards succession, I I would really recommend um, ensuring that you've got a couple people in mind who could step into your role into the future. And that means when you're in your role currently, making sure that you delegate work so that people get an idea of the types of responsibilities you have in your role and that they can get uh, experience doing those things that are important for you to do. And um, ensuring that you have open conversations with people around you about their interests in leadership. Uh, One of the questions that I ask board members throughout the year individually is, you know, Um, what kind of leadership roles might you be interested in? Is that something that you've considered? Is that a a short-term interest or a long-term interest? Just so that I can get a a sense of where people's heads are at, 
when it comes to leadership and, and stepping up into roles into the future. Now, when I stepped into this role, I definitely had some visions of the types of things that I wanted to achieve. And I did achieve some of those, but there's definitely things that I left on the table and that the future board may pick up or the future board may not. Um, I'm really excited that I shifted the board to a new content management system and a new um, customer relationship manager. Those are CMS and CRM, kind of the mainstays of the website and, and contact database. We we didn't really have those before, um, as many organizations often deal in Excel spreadsheets. And so I'm really glad that we got uh, onto a new system and there's still learning that has to take place, but it is a, a really great move for our organization, I think. Uh, another thing that I wanted to leave as a bit of a legacy is to shift the organization. I mean, we're a working board, very small organization, but when I say working board, it doesn't mean that work takes place at a board level. Um, as a, as a board, we shifted over time to getting work done individually or with other volunteers outside of board meetings. And so that we could spend the time in our board meetings, talking about strategic decisions, um, doing visioning, uh, having discussions that might impact our brand or our finances, including strategic alliances and, and big spending. And so at the board level, we had really tight meetings that didn't cover things like what time should this event start because we had smart people on our board um, that can make those sorts of decisions on their own. Not that we're no longer a working board, but I think that we look a little bit more like a management board, uh, maybe a management working board, definitely not a policy board, but that was a, another thing that I wanted to do. And the other thing that I'm leaving the organization with is a draft internal policy manual. We did have some internal policies um, before my time, but not very many. And there were definitely some gaps that we needed to fill. And so over time, we've done consultations uh, on the board and with people off the board to develop internal policies that cover everything from what sort of expenses get covered and reimbursed. Um, how do we support people who are underrepresented in accessing our programs and what's included in our strategic planning process? Those are some of the legacies that I'm proud to have left. And I'm really excited with where the organization is and where it's going and the people that are still involved. So, you know, definitely in a, in a mode of reminiscing, but I'm still happy to be moving on. Another thing that I am doing right now is looking back on some of the learning that I've, I've been able to benefit from with my time on the board. And when I say learning, I kind of mean mistakes. So things that I did when I started on the board that I wish that I might have done differently now that I look back. And I may wish that I have done things differently, but the reasons that I did them the way that I did is because I hadn't had that learning opportunity of being a board chair yet. And it's been a fantastic learning opportunity, and it was really great to take some of the theory that I work on on board governance and play with it in practice and see what that experiences and learn from it. So looking back on that learning is really important. I, I heard someone say once, you know, if you look back at your work five years ago and you don't cringe, you probably haven't been learning and growing. And so I look back at some of the things that I did two years ago and I cringe and I wish that I would have done things differently. Maybe cringe is a strong word, but I would have done things differently. And that's just part of learning and growing. I'm a different person now than I was two years ago. So I've grown and I will continue to do things differently into the future and I'll never be perfect, but I'll definitely work hard to get there. Um, and then the final thing that I think about when it comes to finishing up a time in a role, and I actually wrote a blog post about this a few years back when I left 
my last full-time job is how do you hand over your role like very tactically to a new person and so there are certain files or tasks that I complete to share with the person stepping into my role you know what's the status of work in progress um, literally handing over files or email threads that need action taken um, a list of key contacts who are the people that I contact most in my roles and how do you get in touch with them perhaps making introductions as needed. And sometimes I haven't really done this in, in this position, but I have done it in the past is kind of the burn after reading file. So like, here is the nitty gritty of what you need to know that maybe shouldn't be written down, um, but is important for you to be aware of moving forward. And sometimes that can take place as a conversation instead of a document, obviously, but making sure that people are completely informed and aware when they step into a role as to what the status of things are and where they need to make the first moves when they start in the role. Uh, another thing that I attempt to do is to be clear of what the responsibilities of the role are that I'm passing over to the new person, um, clarifying the things that I do that are core to that role that are absolutely important in order for that role to succeed, and then the things that I do that aren't core to that role, but things that I've done just because I enjoy doing them. And so kind of separating out the things that are core from the things that um, this new person can pick up or could delegate or can uh, cut and ignore in the future. So those are, are a lot of the things that I consider when I am preparing for leaving a role. I'm curious to hear from listeners, when you've left a role, what are some of the things that you've done to prepare to leave that role to somebody new? So curious to hear what uh, what you think. So coming up next is my conversation with Dev Ajla. He's the CEO of a recruitment organization called Catalog that works with companies who make money and do good. He's also the author of a book called Making Good, which is all about rethinking, redesigning, and rebuilding every industry in a way that makes a difference in the world, and specifically how to get a job in those organizations. And finally, he is the founder of a fantastic resource online called 50 Ways to Get a Job. That's at 50waystogetajob.com. And we start off our conversation with him telling me about the work that went into 50 Ways to Get a Job. So 50 Ways to Get a Job came out of Making Good and out of all the hundreds of people that we talked to after the book came out. And we realized that we're saying a lot of the same same advice on like what to do, what are the tangible steps that one needs to take in order to get a job. And so we we got some foundation funding from the Ontario Trillium Foundation and spent three years building this website and this resource and testing it out with thousands of young people um, all the way across North America. And then we put it all together on a website, 50waystogetajob.com. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been amazing. We've had about half a million people come through the site over the last eight months or so and uh, heard some amazing stories. That is awesome. Now, the topic for today was the idea or the fallacy that nonprofits have a monopoly on jobs that have a social impact. And so the reason that I, I came up with this topic uh, actually stems from, I don't know if it was a blog post or what I read, but if you um, do a search of what people are Googling, like you can see frequencies of what people are Googling, and there's been an uptick of like people searching for 
social good jobs or, you know, corporate social responsibility jobs and nonprofit jobs are seeing a decline. And I'm just curious, is this something that you see yourself? Do you see nonprofits losing a monopoly on, on social good jobs? Yeah, I mean, I think today there's actually an opportunity to get jobs that do good that aren't in nonprofits. And I don't know if it's maybe that's why they're losing a monopoly. There's still a ton of jobs in nonprofits and nonprofits need all of our support. We can we can give them and the best talent possible. But there's also this other opportunity that has emerged and it continues to emerge. And it is that all of every industry you can imagine is being rethought in a way that does good by some company. And those startups that are doing that work are usually funded by the entrenched players in the field. So the large the large product goods company will be funding a small startup that's doing things in a more sustainable way. Or a BMW will be funding electric car companies. And what's interesting is that those then those startups are actually the ones that are hiring. And so there's all, there aren't necessarily jobs that just say do good, you know, your job tells <laughs> do gooder. Exactly. But what there are are jobs like regular jobs, like accountants and graphic designers and product managers and admin assistants in companies whose whole mission is to do good. And the product they're selling is actually part of that great reinvention of our economy in a way that's more sustainable for the world. So can you give a couple of other examples? Like where have you seen people move into jobs that would be, you know, quote unquote, social good jobs who may have previously been considering nonprofit kind of work? So earlier today, I was talking with somebody that had spent their whole career in restructuring buyouts. So it was like the most corporate thing you can imagine in marketing. So it's like marketing of big US corporations when they go under. And they are now looking at these, like, they're going to get a job at this incubator that is um, training young social entrepreneurs and investing in these startups and be able to bring that sort of global corporate mindset back down to help young people that are starting up these, these companies. And those are actually for profits that they're that are starting. I mean, it, you can also see that like big companies like Coca-Cola are investing in companies like Honest Tea. Waste management is like the biggest landfill or waste company out there in the world. And they invested in a company called Recycle Bank. And there's all of these sort of examples where you get the entrenched player investing. And so Recycle Bank is the one that's hiring. And they need people that have been in that field for years and know how that works so that they can actually speak the language and and build the business. So the paths like to those sorts of jobs, the path would not be the traditional um, non-profity, warm, fuzzy job path. What you're describing, it sounds like people go through the the trenches in the corporate world in some way, and then loop back around to use those skills in a social purpose role. Is that? Yeah, there's what what we're seeing is so some a lot of these companies that are, you know, really out there about the good they do in the world are getting thousands of people applying to them. But those applications are really splitting up into two different piles. They're getting all the people that have all the mission fit in the world, but they don't have the skills or they haven't built those years of experience actually doing the work for the job they're applying for. And on the other side, they're getting people with all the skills. So just purely corporate folks that want to now do good or are approaching their time for their second career 
and but they don't have that mission fit. And so there's this odd gap that happens. So they still don't have the right people that actually have both mission and skills. And so, I mean, a lot of young people that uh, I reach that I've reached or talked to through Making Good and through Dream Now are coming out of college. And like, what do you do? You know, you want that perfect job that has mm-hmm. both right away. And like, er, the one thing that's so often overlooked is that sometimes it's okay and actually more beneficial for your career if you just go get a job that helps you build that skill and then enables you. It's still moving you towards your trajectory of getting that perfect job. You know, you just have to have that little bit of a broader frame. Everyone wants everything all at once. And sometimes it's worth it to like build that skill and actually get some real experience within a, a, a company and be an entrepreneur and step up and understand what it takes to shift within the industry and then make that move and identify what those opportunities to reinvent it from the inside are or jump to a startup that's reinventing and, um, and get that job that unites it both. You use the word entrepreneur. What do you mean by that? So entrepreneur is somebody that uh, works within a, an already existing framework to try to shift things and, and, and move the needle inside on for sustainability or for the things that they care about. And they're, they're a vital role because they both can be the liaison between outside parties and help translate the industry language to nonprofits or or entrepreneurs that are trying to change the industry from the outside. They also know the power structures within the company and know the, who to talk to and when to talk to them and how to frame those arguments or make the case inside. So let's, um, let me back up and look at, th- I'm going to pitch three different scenarios to you, and I would love for you to share some advice on the best tactics to take for each of those stages. So the sure. first would be someone uh, leaving university that in you know they have or leaving school of some sort, they have some sort of body of knowledge, maybe a bit of volunteer experience, maybe some service jobs and they are interested in a job or a career path that has purpose. What would you um, what are some tangible activities you would suggest for them in just starting out in a career path? Well, I think uh, starting out, like just pick one industry, you know, like try to pick, look through your nonlinear career path, spend some time sort of mapping out what's happened so far in your life. You're already in the middle of it. You aren't quite at the beginning, even though it feels like it. So what are those threads that you can already piece together throughout your university career, throughout those volunteering experiences and pick an industry and then try to go deep into that industry and try to understand what is happening and how things are shifting and what are the companies doing that are sort of bucking the trend and trying to do things more sustainably or better for the world. And just in that process, you'll start uncovering opportunities that other people don't see. So a lot of times people just see the Warby Parkers or the Tom Shoes or the good.com or purpose.com that are on the covers of these magazines or are talked about all the time. But the real opportunity for jobs comes from identifying these these sort of hidden ones that are in every single industry. And the way to find them is to really go and start researching one specific industry. But I can imagine that would be like crazy overwhelming for a young person going like, well, how do I know if I want to dig into clothing or waste management or fast food? Like, how do you, <laughs> there's so many different sectors and industries to dig into. Yeah, I mean, so I'd say just pick one, and if you really don't like it, as soon as you start talking to people, you really don't feel a connection to it, then then decide to change. But don't like just 
try to go deep into one. And it, like, even if you like fast food, you start reaching all these companies like Dig In and Sweet Green that are trying to and Chipotle that are trying to rethink how to get healthy food to people at a good price. And all those companies are hiring like crazy. And and the kinds of work that they're doing and the kinds of challenges that they're solving all of a sudden spin into a whole other world of people that are working on that. And like, so as soon as you you take one step a world will unfold mm. and uh, you'll get a really good sense right away in your gut whether it's something that you want to continue doing or or shift if someone has that mission fit but doesn't necessarily have the skills is is that a lost cause or no you know do you see people doing self-development or what do you what do you suggest? yeah i mean i'd say may, start with making a list of things that you want to learn you know pretend you're an entrepreneur that's reshaping that that specific industry you want to work in and make a list of everything that you need to learn to do that. What are the tangible skills? Like go on a monster.com and just look at the skills that are listed in job titles for companies that are not at all related about purpose because those actual skills like graphic design or operations or human resources or building the company culture and the job descriptions that follow those will be needed and are needed by companies with purpose. You know, they're growing quickly and as they grow from twenty people to fifty people, they need a whole other layer of, of folks that are doing this type of work. And you can position yourself to be that person and get those skills. And it starts by making a list of it of what skills you want to get and then go make then try to figure out where's the best place you can learn it. Maybe the best place you can learn it is not is not that ideal company that's still figuring it out. Maybe the best place to learn it is someone that's figured it out, that's doing it really well, that isn't quite the perfect mission fit, but you can go be there for a year or two years and just like really learn about how to manage a product pipeline or really how to bring an app to market or whatever the, the skill is that you want to you hone in on. Um, you got to see it as part of a bigger plan a little bigger career arc than everything right now. People go to school for four years to learn. And so think about your career though. Maybe you're going to spend two years learning a skill in a, not a school, but you're going to get paid for it. And it's going to be in a company X, you know, and mm-hmm. that company X isn't the ideal dream thing that you want to do, but that's just like another two years of education. And that's, and that's sort of a nice way to think about it. I mean, people are very comfortable delaying their self for another two years for a master's or two, four years for, for, uh, undergrad. And, you know, if sometimes you can think about taking this job and learning this skill for two years, and it's actually you get paid well that you do it too. So, and then the third scenario is people that have the corporate background, but not necessarily a mission fit. So, for people that are entering what you mentioned before as a second career, or a, and sometimes it's often people near retirement, but it can be when people change their minds about their career paths earlier on, like. How do you how do you develop that mission fit, or how do you get into learning more about how social impact, whether that's in the nonprofit sector or in the corporate world, you know, what would you suggest for folks like that? Yeah, I mean, I I think in some ways it it can be almost easier to try to to find the mission fit than it can be quicker sometimes <laughs> to build the mission fit than to have twenty years of of skill building, but. It's, these people actually have the skills, so how do they do the mission? Well, it starts, I mean, in, in a similar way, it starts with um, like d- discovering who those people are that are actually uh, shifting the specific industry and like what's actually going on either on the policy side or on the activism side. And so they actually have a little more in-depth knowledge of the issues. A lot of the time you see people that are like, but I've, I've volunteered in... Africa refugee camp doing XYZ and so I want to work for and I know I want purpose so now I want to work for this 
food company that looks like they're doing organic food. Like, it just doesn't quite fit, you know? Or it's just, like, the... I mean, it makes sense in their head, but then, like, how can you describe... How can you find that mission fit for that specific industry or for that specific job that you want? And that can be about reshaping your story. It's also that process of reshaping your story after 20 years is a process of omission, you know? So it's like, what do you take out of your story and how do you, what do you, what do you build up and what are the pieces that you need to build? Mm. And it's not about including everything you've done, but instead it's about trying to pull out the the relevant stories and, and draw a nice, a new, a new way of seeing yourself. Obviously you've done a lot of work in the, I guess, non-traditional, non-profit social impact space. Um, do you think that non-profit employers are potentially losing out on people that are interested in this other realm of social impact careers? Or is there a need to adapt? Or is there... No, I, I don't think... I think there's um, there's room for both, you know? The more people that we have doing good work in the world, the better better for the world so i think i don't think they're directly competitive i think it's a whole another market of people that never even were being considered for jobs in the nonprofit space mm-hmm. um, or that wanted to get paid more or had lifestyles that had ended up you know costing more and like would it couldn't make that initial sacrifice or aren't in that place to do that in their life right now or have a lot of student debt you know there's all these other opportunities for traditional jobs but they're in companies that are have purpose. When you talk to potential, um, talk to people that you may be matching with your recruiting clients, do you notice any trends about like expectations or hopes or desires that they have out of careers that we're looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think there's this, there's a real shift going on from people making decisions for stability on a stability base to a learning based decision mm-hmm. and. That's a real uh, theme across the board is that people are asking, what can I learn next and how will this job teach me that? And I think that's a really key uh, factor. I think it's one of the factors that drives people to move so much between jobs is so they don't feel like they're learning anything anymore. And I think that's a, it's a shift from the last generation that was much more stability-based, what's going to provide the more stability and uh, how can I achieve that and how can I structure my career to for that end and uh yeah i think that's a that's a big shift that we're seeing and it has implications for how people create cultures what kind of opportunities that companies provide their employees and um how they get them to stay and do you see that companies are stepping up to that challenge of of creating a culture of learning and and growth some are i mean some are struggling to do it others um like big ones are offering a little educational um, bursaries, they are, you know, providing learning secondments for people so they go into different areas of the company and, and get placements for a couple of months. They are offering job title changes that provide for different types of learning. So there, there are different programs that are, are happening, but it is, it's in transition at the moment. So the topic of this podcast is do good better when it comes to connecting people interested in social impact careers and the companies that are recruiting for them, how could that connection be done better, either from the perspective of the companies or the perspective of the um, people looking for career moves? I I think from a company's side of point, it's it's learning how to understand somebody's nonlinear career path. 
you know, and understand how a diverse set of experiences actually tie together and make this person a perfect fit for the role. And I think that it's up to it's up to us as individuals that are applying for jobs to tell our stories in a way that that makes people get it, even makes people understand your nonlinear career. And uh, and it's possible. Thank you so much, Deb. It was great to talk to you over Skype. And next up, question from a listener, followed by a response to the last episode when I ranted and raved about conferences. Hi, Trina. I had a question about how people could do good better, specifically around days of giving, these corporate initiatives where all staff will volunteer for a day with a variety of nonprofits or charities in their community. They seem a great way for corporations to give back, to boost employee morale, and increase community engagement, but they're often confined to a day. It forces a charity to drop everything to participate, and sometimes seems like some make-work projects. So how can social do-gooders, nonprofits, and other change makers make the most of these corporate philanthropy initiatives uh, and one-day armies that may show up at their door? Do you leave things a mess, waiting for them to come clean it up? Or what other strategies could charities and nonprofits use to make the most of these corporate philanthropy initiatives? Thanks so much. Great question. I have a lot of opinions on this. The the first response I recorded to your question, actually, I went off on a bit of a tangent and ranted a lot about how days of giving are often done so poorly. And I suggested some ways that they could be done better. But that's not really your question. You were focusing on how should nonprofit organizations and change makers react to these requests? And, and how should they adapt to respond to these organizations and these companies that want to do team building exercises or days of service with them. But I do want to before I get into that, uh, cover a few points about where I think days of service or, or corporate volunteerism, days of giving fall down. Um, the first being that I truly do not believe that for most companies, not necessarily the individuals who are in the mid and lower ranks, but for a, a lot of companies, they are looking for, when it comes to a day of service, a positive team building activity that enhances employee engagement. Um, I think it's a bit of a PR exercise, and they're less concerned about the true impact on the organization and the communities that they purport to serve. I think that's, it sounds horrible, but I think that's very true for a large majority of senior executives. Um, some are definitely turning around, but uh, they would prefer a positive experience with little impact than a impactful experience that wasn't as positive or fun. I also think that days of giving disproportionately benefit organizations that have a lot of buildings to be painted or, or things to be built, like um, community gardens or homes. Um, they benefit groups that work outdoors, rehabilitating natural environments, things like organizations that pull invasive weed species, etc. Um, and they also don't benefit organizations that do social justice or anti-poverty or uh, anti-racist work as some topics may be considered too controversial. And so the organizations that benefit are ones that are generally status quo, not too uh, flashy or activist or controversial. Um, days of giving also don't benefit virtual organizations, ones that don't really have a fixed address or fixed office hours, as so many networked organizations are today. And the vast majority of charities and nonprofits in North America have one or fewer employees. And these, again, are not the types of organizations that are being benefited. So you, you definitely see skewed benefits to the types of organizations that are benefited from days of service. 
Um, days of service, the way that they're currently designed and the types of activities that are created for them, often don't use the brains of the organization and the people within it. They don't use the brains of the company. They use their hands and time. And I think that's a waste of talent. And I think that good days of service or good corporate volunteerism needs to reconsider the type of assets of their employees that are contributed to the organizations they're working with. Um, often the area of the company that organizes days of service is poorly resourced. Just as charities and nonprofits are poorly resourced, the areas of a company or a corporation that does corporate social responsibility or community engagement is often poorly resourced and considered to the charity within the company. Um, and it means that they aren't able to create the impact that the company would truly like to see. And finally, one of my pet peeves is when organizations use use a request to host a day of service as a bit of a, a carrot, or sometimes I think it's actually more of a stick, to get more nonprofits to create experiences and they end up being busy work experiences. So kind of the, they might use the thinking, you know, if you create something for us, we could get to know you and maybe give you grants or funding in the future. And I think there are other ways to build relationships between companies and nonprofit organizations and charities. And so dangling that carrot, I think, is a really douchey thing to do. So you are right, caller. Um, these are often make-work projects that are created as parts of days of corporate volunteerism and days of service. Uh, nonprofits often have to drop everything and they get pulled away from actually doing the work of their organization and forwarding their mission. So uh, generally, most corporate days of service are shit. There are definitely consultants and organizations and companies that are doing things better, but the vast majority right now are shit. Anyways, but that wasn't your question. Your question was, how do we make the most of these days of giving or days of service? So, um, you know, should you stock up? I think that can be the case. Anything that involves, um, you know, moving, cleaning, painting, building, improving, any, especially if those things don't require a professional for your organization to be happy with the outcome, by all means, save those things up. Uh, even better, though, I think one alternative would be to offer to sit down and brainstorm with a person from their company who is interested in your mission so that you can uh, tell them about the organization, your goals, its activities, how you operate, and find out where that employee think that there could be a fit for what the company's interests are and what your organization needs. So find out, you know, what sort of things might their colleagues have fun or enjoy doing or enjoy contributing that also fits your organization needs and that can be a bit of a back and forth rather than uh, just brainstorming within your own organization. Another way to totally rethink the type of things that could be done on a day of service would be instead of uh, thinking of it as a manual labor day, think about it as a research day. Whether it's at your location, if you have one, or out in the community or at their location, you can set things up as a, as a competition or a race, or you can even have an impact thermometer to show them how far they are getting to achieve the impact of the research that you want them to do. Um, and the type of research that you might want to do could be things like finding baseline data on an issue, um, building comparison notes on public policy issues, etc. Uh, for example, if your organization could benefit from knowing the rates of women or people of color or people with disabilities on city councils in your area, then get them to do some web research and dig up every city councillor and their diversity metrics. 
or perhaps um, if your organization would benefit from comparing and contrasting the completeness of information on a variety of government websites that offer social services, perhaps um, give them a rating system or have them build the rating system and then let them have Avid for the day and, and you know rank government websites with an A or a C plus or a D minus based on how well they communicate their services to the general public online. Um, one thing I've seen done, not as a day of service, but actually as, as kind of a hackathon, actually, is, um, you know, if your organization would benefit or your clients would benefit from knowing the physical accessibility of retail stores and restaurants in your city, have them go out on on um, exploratory walks with some of your clients and ga gather data given uh, a spreadsheet or given a checklist. And then through this work, they could, you know, ideally understand the relevance of their research to your mission, and it could give them an opportunity to reflect on things that they've learned, um, having maybe learned more about the issues that you're working on. So those are some days to rethink days of service um, as a research day. I, I'm not familiar with organizations that have done this next idea, but I think it would be interesting to create a really great team building day that includes some sort of warm, fuzzy experience. You know, it might be light on impact, but give employees the feelings of doing good um, and also include some facilitated team building exercises with a, you know, someone who's an experienced facilitator, someone with HR background or facilitation experience, uh, dialogue experience um, that provides opportunities for conversations and reflection and discussion and then charge companies for it, make them pay for that team building. So if you think of a common popular team building activity that companies often pay for is a ropes course. You know, you go to a ropes course, you experience things related to trust and fear and um, the importance of working together. And you have someone who's facilitating conversations along the ropes course and afterwards. And companies pay for that. So create a similar experience that has some level of impact towards your mission and charge companies for it. It's got to be well designed. It needs to actually... Uh, have people have important experiences that result in opportunities to reflect and, and converse, but charge them for it. Um, and then the final opportunity uh, to respond to corporate requests for days of service is to just say no. Tell them that you would love to build a long-term relationship with their company, but if they truly want to contribute, that you have some longer-term projects that their company could take the lead on and their employees could really make an impact with, um, for example, maybe rebranding, some larger research projects, um, writing projects, strategic program reviews. Um, there's lots of ways an organization could go with that. Uh, especially at the management level, and uh, and tell them that you'd be happy to discuss those and just say no to days of service. Tell them that it takes time away from your mission and that you have decided on principle and on policy not to do those sorts of things. So those are some ideas that I have for you. I'm curious to know what you think about corporate volunteerism and especially days of service. Does your company do that sort of thing? Or are you a nonprofit who has been on the receiving end of corporate volunteerism? Would love to hear your ideas and feedback. Hi, Trina. In episode two, you asked why people go to conferences. For me, sometimes I feel isolated in my day-to-day -day work. So going to a conference is kind of about reconnecting with my tribe and charging the batteries so that I come back to work more energized. So this is slightly different than networking. Also, it doesn't hurt if the destination is really exciting. Thanks for your podcast. That's it for today's episode. 
The resources and links mentioned in today's episode are listed in the episode description and at trinaisaacson.com. If you'd like to submit a comment or question or want to share how you're doing good better, the instructions are at trinaisaacson.com forward slash podcast. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week.